We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing mental health. We're going to be having some difficult discussions about medical assistance in dying and assisted suicide. If you are struggling, please reach out to someone. There's also a toll-free line that you can call to make sure you get the support you need. 1-833-456-4566. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. John Maher. He's a psychiatrist in the Barrie area of Southern Ontario and president of the Ontario Association of Assertive, Assertive Community Treatment, uh, an active practice involved in giving people mental health supports in the community where they need it. He's had 30 years working in and around medical ethics, medicine, and mental health. He became a doctor after graduating from McMaster University and he's the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Ethics in Mental Health. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast, Dr. John Maher. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Let's talk a bit about your personal journey to working in mental health and having an expertise both from the medical ethics side and trying to now find this balance that we're in in expanding medical assistance in dying to people with a mental health condition. I first came across you, doctor, when I read your op-ed on an experience you had beside Niagara Falls, where a young man climbed out to the edge of the falls and the crowd stood in, in silent shock as he was contemplating uh, the end of his own life and the moral dilemma that presented to everyone around him and yourself as a father that was there. I found that very very touching, very compelling. And I also know that you came to this area from childhood trauma, of losing your best friend and serving as a pallbearer at his, his funeral. Talk about your journey that's led you to a lifetime of, of helping people. So I wasn't expecting that to come up. Um, it, uh, it is interesting, of course, what shapes our life and uh, our values. I mean, I, I will say in this context, my, my dad was heavily involved in uh, civic service um, as a city alderman and so on. So I was raised with, with values that um, really I was taught life is about helping other people, supporting other people, and, and came, of course, to understand that as I moved through life, that uh, what a privilege, what a remarkable privilege it is to be able to do that but uh, but yes when i was when i was 10 years old my uh, best friend died of cancer and mm -hmm. uh, that meant that many years later when i was working on a phd in medical ethics and i had an opportunity to work in the childhood cancer field it felt somehow like i belonged there whether that was you know an unconscious effort to try and fix what i couldn't fix as a child i'm not sure but uh, my interest uh, evolved through that work into supporting people through chronic and terminal illness. And uh, again, uh, I don't know that 
there's any greater tragedy tragedy in anyone's life than to lose a child. But uh, certainly, uh, on a par, I would say that uh, the loss of anyone you love to suicide is uh, is horrific. Um, the helplessness, the sense of guilt, the the wishing something could have been different. And so somehow in this circuitous route through the, the cancer world, I, I ended up in uh, uh, working in psychiatry in part because of an initial interest in psycho-oncology work, wanting to work with, with people who were dying and struggling with making meaning and purpose. And uh, what became clear to me is I had very little interest in chemotherapy protocols, but a, a lot of interest in what it means to be human, what it means to uh, make sense of our suffering, and uh, how do we prepare for death, uh, the existential question, the ever-present question um, for humanity. And uh, so moved into psychiatry and gravitated uh, within psychiatry. I, I worked with uh, people with personality disorders. I've been chief of psychiatry at a couple of hospitals, worked in emergency psychiatry, psychiatry but where I kept finding myself um, moving towards, in part because I was feeling that there was a need for people who would stick with it no matter what, uh, is the people with the most uh, severe and persistent mental illness. So primarily schizophrenia, um, schizoaffective disorder. So for the last 20 years uh, through that path, I, I've been working with an assertive community treatment team. And these are the teams across Canada whose job it is to support the people really as, as the the last resort uh, in order to help people live their lives well and recover um, uh, because in the past these are these are the people who filled our asylums and uh, fortunately that's not where we have to be now and we do have astonishingly effective treatments relative to 30 years ago and we do know that team-based care building a community of support for people um, helping them you know find a place uh, in a world that has pushed them to the fringes is uh, transformative, right? We, we need to matter to each other. We need to be cared for. And with Christmas coming up, I will say that for uh, the majority of the people that my team supports in the community, our team members will be the only people they see at Christmas. There is, there is no one else. And so pressed into a world of poverty with inadequate disability funding, uh, having to live in a system where you have to wait up to years for mental health service. Uh, I, I know I'm touching on lots of topics here, but the, yeah. the bottom line is um, against that backdrop, our teams you know, who, who do suicide prevention as a matter of our daily work are now having to do made prevention work. And mm -hmm. I, I never expected this yeah. ever in Canada. Well, let's talk about that 30 year and, and look, thank you as, as the son of uh, a mom who died of breast cancer when I was, when I was young, when I was nine, um, that end of life palliative, that support uh, is critical. And in your 30 years, you would have seen a transformation. As you've said, uh, 30 years ago, we we literally committed people to asylums, and these were uh, out of sight, out of mind. That changed, and a lot of the, those people are now vulnerable in our community, sometimes uh, on our streets. We are, however, also becoming more mature in discussions about mental health and mental wellness. There's new treatment options. So let's talk about 
the serious and challenging cases, uh, schizophrenia, for example, in in 30 years, is is it easier to get someone on a treatment regime to to be well living with a, a very challenging mental health condition like that? Are, are we making strides? I know there's not enough access to treatment. We can talk about that. But are the treatments evolving to to allow that that journey uh, of wellness for for people with a severe condition? The short and I think critically important answer is yes, absolutely yes. I mean, this is this is a a lot of time that has passed with a lot of research, growing understanding, recognition of of what works and what doesn't. Um, just on on the the point of access, I, I would like to say that these are neuro neurodegenerative diseases. People get sicker if you don't treat it in a timely way, and given that we're talking about cancer here, I mean, if, if you were, you know, showed up at your family doctor's office with a brain tumor, you're not going to be waiting years for treatment. And yet we have people in Ontario, uh, as of last count, we have about 5,700 people waiting up to five years for the right treatment. In no other area of medicine would we allow that to happen. So while I'm giving you a, a very positive answer, yes, standard treatment has become remarkably effective. If you're not treating in a timely way, then you've missed the window of opportunity for many people. Fortunately, many people still do recover, even even down the road, they can they can heal. But for many others, the delay is uh, astonishing to me because where in no, in no other area of medicine would we let a physical condition progress that we we know the trajectory no we know with 100% certainty where this is going to go if we don't treat it and it begs the question of why do we let that happen we have we have 80 of the types of team i work on they're 12 person teams uh, in ontario there should be 130 of them in ontario at least and you know you hear over and over there's the economic argument we can't afford this our system is strained uh, you know to to the to the brink but the Mental Health Commission of Canada has for really about 15 years now been producing the economic analyses that, that put the lie to that claim. We would actually save tens of billions of dollars by just providing the basic treatment. So why is it we spend more money to let people suffer and get to the point where their disease leaves them with profound impairment? And to put schizophrenia in context, if you look at the quality of life research that kind of compares different illnesses, different life events, um, schizophrenia is on an exact par with quadriplegia. So if you were in a car accident tomorrow, the impact on your life would be equivalent from a research perspective. So to dismiss this as somehow people can wait uh, for treatment or they don't need supports is remarkable. It's, it's yeah. remarkable for those of us who do the work. It's how do you not see it? Where, where, what drives the sustained stigma or what makes it possible for, and again, no offense here, but for politicians to continue to not fund something that on, on the least objective measure would save hundreds of millions of dollars in their jurisdiction. It, it's, uh, it confounds me, honestly. No, I, I uh, it confounds me as well. And without me reliving the 2021 election, um, I was trying to make some historic investments in mental health because I agree with you. We were going to have community treatment facilities for for addiction because often addictions are masking underlying mental health conditions. 
um, I'm, I'm a world leading investment in the public system to allow provinces uh, to, to ramp up services. And you're leading up to one of the aspects of the quandary our country is facing is right now we're underfunding or not adequately funding mental health supports. Um, and so people that will have the supports will tend to be people or children of people with great benefit programs that may work for the government or for the corporate sector that can have the pharmacological and the, the, the uh, client doctor uh, treatment options um, that a lot of people that would be in retail or more marginal work are not going to be uh, able to access. So already we're probably seeing a socioeconomic division between the middle class and wealthy getting access to mental health supports and people more at the margins literally having no access. Is, are you seeing that on a daily basis? Absolutely. I mean, only one in three Canadians who need mental health care have access to it. Only one in five children, which is, uh, I think, a horrific, uh, really, perversion because we could prevent so much mental illness from developing if we treated earlier. But, uh, you know, my all of the... Uh, the clients that our team, the patients that our team works with, you know, they live in poverty. They disability income. You know, this is a broken record here, but if you're getting eleven hundred a month and your rent is twelve hundred a month, uh, well, you're not you're not living in a in even the most basic of apartments. I mean, our work, our daily work in the community is in rooming houses. It is in buildings that have been converted to with with people jammed in and you know rat infested cockroach infested bed bug infested um, i've had to admit two people in the last year to hospital because they had so many bed bugs they needed transfusions that's how much blood loss they had and uh you know the, the country with our with our wealth with our privilege it's uh I, I almost, I just don't know what to say in a way anymore that we let people continue to suffer like this. And the article a couple of days ago about food banks that were supposed to be a temporary measure and now 40 years on, without food banks, my people, my folks wouldn't have food, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, and beyond that, in terms of treatment, um, yes, there's wide disparity around who can get what, who has access to what. And uh, yeah, I love our public uh, healthcare system. I love the principle, um, but we need to live it, right? Yeah. To live yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. And we also have to realize that, uh, it's on this pedestal because we're proud of it, but it's, it's, it's not the best in the world. In fact, it's, it's, it's falling place after place every year. So we could have a wider conversation on that, but even some of your commentary alluded to, to really the, the conundrum our society is facing on March 17th, 2023, our regime of medical assistance in dying will be extended to people with a mental illness or mental health condition that could be the sole underlying uh, ailment leading them to access made. It really is putting our medical profession, our mental health profession and society in a bit of a a debate. And I've always said in all my speeches on MAID going back to 2015, 2016, there is compassion on both sides of this debate, but there's a, a moral question that often gets overlooked. So what we're going to do right now, John, is we're going to play a very compelling clip from your expert testimony to, to a parliamentary committee 
that right now is is charged with coming up with a solution with this deadline looming. And we're going to play that clip and then discuss the current debate being held with respect to extending made to those with mental illness. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a medical ethicist. For 20 years, I have worked only with adults who have the most severe and persistent forms of mental illness in cockroach and bedbug infested rooming houses and on the streets where our wealthy society forces them to live in poverty. Our sons and daughters treated as social outcasts. MAID activists say everyone must be able to access MAID regardless of crushing poverty, the shocking lack of treatment availability, protracted wait times of years, or having brain diseases where it is impossible to predict irremediability. The rallying cry is autonomy at all costs, but the inescapable cost is people dying who would get better. What number of mistaken guesses is acceptable to you? Death is not an acceptable substitute for good treatment, food, housing, and compassion. You who voted for this law have not understood vulnerability and what it means for your doctor to offer you death over life. Pretty compelling, uh, John, in terms of talking about the situation we're in. We're in a situation where food banks are being accessed at historic highs for our our population. We have a, a, a cost of living crisis. We have a radical underfunding of healthcare system or strain on the healthcare system. You may say at a time more and more people are trying to get access for mental health. We've got the sort of extremes of poverty being stretched, more homelessness. And now we're opening up this door to people that can access made with only uh, a mental health condition that is treatable if resources are there and supports are there, accessing MAID. Um, how, is, how is the psychiatry or mental health profession more broadly facing this quandary? Because you, you laid it out perfectly. There's this sort of uh, autonomists compassionately saying, oh, we're discriminating against mental health versus people like yourself saying, no, we need to treat people with mental health and they shouldn't be in this regime. What, what's happening with the prof within the profession as we're facing that March deadline? So for many psychiatrists, this was a complete surprise, right? The legislation between February 4th and March 23rd, that was a very short period of time under cover of COVID and passed, as you know, with, with a closure motion. So I've had a year of colleagues saying, is this really happening? Did they pass this? Right? Because there was, there was simply a lack of awareness. And in the last month, um, I've had... Uh, probably 20 requests to talk to people about this, to do rounds uh, with psychiatry services. I know one Toronto hospital, they haven't gone public with this yet, but their psychiatrists voted against doing this because even if it's legal, their position, as, as is the position of the Canadian Mental Health Association, CAMH, American Psychiatric Association, on and on, they said we can't predict irremediability. We have no we have no basis for doing this. This is this is guesswork. We can't satisfy the criterion. Whether you're interpreting irremediability as in the moment, as I think uh, many made providers are disturbingly interpreting it, or whether you mean over time that some healing or reduction in suffering is possible. Uh, either way, you can't predict. Um, 
how things are going to play out. Um, so to answer your question, the psychiatry community, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, as you probably know, came out with a position statement that said we're going to support whatever the law says in effect and uh, many statements about apparent neutrality that we're not neutral uh it's uh you know it's an abdication of responsibility to not take a position on this i mean this is this is why the world medical association was formed after the second world war that that it was understood that you uh, as, as physicians, you have a particular civic duty and role, not just uh, in terms of your oath to your patients, but as a matter of your profession, you're professing to not kill people uh, as, as part of your job, as part of your vocation. So where I'm going with this is we've only had one survey of psychiatrists in Canada after the legislation came in. There were a couple of before that, one in, one in Quebec, um, and uh, the CPA back in, uh, I think it was 2016, asked about May generally. And you'd have the responses that weren't surprising that, yeah, okay, maybe this is a good thing. Uh, people honestly weren't thinking it through. The one survey we had after the legislation in Ontario, we have about 1,700 psychiatrists in Ontario. So the response rate was about 270 psychiatrists a valid enough sample. I mean, you can't speak for everybody. But on that sample, you had 91% of the psychiatrists saying, no way, we, we can't do this. And in particular, we can't do this, given that Canada is setting forth legislation that is the most liberal in the world. Uh, unlike the, you know, the three Benelux countries, uh, we don't have to try treatment here. In the Benelux countries, you at least have to have tried standard treatment. So, the medical community, my psychiatrist community, is catching on that the absolute choice to uh, to refuse all treatments will be respected as and and uh, will still open the door to getting made for mental illness. What does this mean? Uh, you know, in, in my daily world. I have a patient who was refusing psychotherapy because she didn't want to, in her words, be talked into not choosing to die, even though the point of psychotherapy, of course, is to help her find, you know, meaning and purpose and deal with her suffering. The patient who, uh, you know, said he wanted made because he didn't believe anyone would ever love him again. He had suffered the loss of an important relationship, was profoundly lonely. I have a patient right now, if I offered you my most exasperating, um, you know, literally by the day struggle. I have a patient who sought out a maid provider that she had seen mentioned in the news. That maid provider did an assessment uh, over Zoom and said, yep, I'll provide maid for you. And that maid provider asked, um, you know, my client to, uh, to send his medical records from the family doctor to her. That was done and the medical records were full of these facts. This patient has schizophrenia. This patient has a delusional disorder where she believes she has physical ailments, uh, where she believes she has terminal illness and so on. So the MAID provider actually approved MAID on the basis of delusional statements that were not checked. And when that was, was kind of, this, this is playing out because it almost seems unbelievable to me, but that MAID provider has certainly expressed publicly on a number of occasions great confidence about being able to assess psychiatric patients that she doesn't need to speak with psychiatrists. She doesn't need to sort out the capacity issues. She can do it herself. And 
you know, at the risk of sounding presumptuous, psychiatry, uh, you know, there's a reason it's a five-year residency. There's a reason it's the, you know, longer than surgery. Um, there's a, there's a body of knowledge and experience that makes capacity assessments and understanding what's going on, I think, critically important to this debate. So, what what do we do with people who are choosing death and are saying to me over and over, this is not suicide? And they're saying it because there is a concerted effort by made advocates to distinguish this from an act of suicide. And yet the American Canadian Suicide Prevention Associations, all the suicide research in the world says suicide is taking steps to plan your own death, which is what yeah. this is. Well, and I've heard that commentary that even over many years, the mate has become almost a euphemism. It's almost become a substitute for the real discussion, which is very apparent when it comes to mental health, because you would be dealing with people that have a treatable condition. No question a tradition that has a degree of suffering and, and, and of chronic element to it. It must be at times overwhelming and incredibly frustrating to to one of your patients, but there are treatment options. And we all know the success stories, uh, much like your young man at the, the, at the edge of the Niagara Falls, where you said when he finally walked back, he was hugged by strangers. He felt hope. He felt, you know, belonging. Um, people can, can get onto that treatment option and be like my friend, Romeo Dallaire, saving children, child soldiers around the world. So are we, setting up a system where you say 91% of the profession roughly uh, is very opposed to this extension of made into mental health. But you could have patients shopping around for that 9% to let them access it. Is that the fear? Sure. That 9%, only um, 2 or 3% said they were in favor. The others said, we don't know yet. And we, we do know from Belgium where one psychiatrist was responsible for, as you know, some 80% of all uh, psychiatric euthanasia, that there will be a network, there already is a network, right, of made assessors, and they refer to each other. And, and so uh, I have no doubt that people will doctor shop until dead. I have no doubt there will be, uh, I don't mean to disparage my, my colleagues, I, th I think there, you know, there, there is some motivation here that I respect in terms of relief of suffering. But what I can't accept is a doctor who would kill a patient when treatment is available. And I mean standard treatment, not some wild exotic stuff. I mean just basic standard good care. I and my psychiatrist colleagues in the ACT world, we meet regularly. And we've tried to come up with cases of patients that we haven't seen get better, right, to, to be an honest contributor to this discussion. And we don't have that. People get better. Um, and, you know, I may not get rid of the voices that you've got, but I can help you have a sense of control or mastery over them, which changes everything, for example. Or, you know, we reduce, hopefully, your, your, uh, your suffering through simply housing you. Mm -hmm. More than that, human connection, right? Our, our major tool is relationship. And when you look at people and how they kill themselves, I mean, 75% plan it quite thoughtfully. Uh, fortunately, of the people who attempt suicide in Canada, only 7% go on to complete suicide, right? So that means that their 93%, whatever happened after that attempt or that, you know, that struggle, something changed, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
so I think it's critical that we, we recognize that recovery is possible, that the installation of hope is possible, and that this is not some, you know, fanciful, I, I wish this would happen. I've been, I've had so many conversations in the past year with people saying to me, you know, my daughter's tried everything or I've tried everything. And I ask a few questions and they haven't tried everything. And some of that, to be honest, is the lack of services available within a community, psychiatrists not referring on. Some of it is psychiatrist experience. Uh, I mean, I didn't know what I didn't know until I got into the subspecialty field of treatment, of mm-hmm. treating just treatment-resistant disease. You know, if, you, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you can go to the local cancer center, but if you have a, you know, a bit of a rare tumor, you're off to Princess Margaret. So there are levels of expertise that need to be appreciated here. Uh, and uh, So I think that's relevant. Yeah, let's look at this autonomy at all costs as you presented it, because I think most Canadians that don't follow the news and the political debates and, and maybe missed committee hearings, I, I probably there's 0.02% of Canadians that watch committee hearings, although yours was very compelling. Um, the th- Most people would think of made in the context of the original case, Sue Rodriguez or the Carter case, somebody with ALS, something that has a... Uh, a terminal degenerative uh, disease where quality of life is eroding, uh, death is reasonably foreseeable, which was the original standard from the from the law that came into effect in, in 2016. Um, but now we're stretching into a place where death is not foreseeable at all. In fact, we have conditions that would be chronic in some cases but even temporal. So we're getting into a situation where we could have um, an 18-year-old young woman with an eating disorder or with depression. Um, The brain is not fully formed until 25. We remember those debates from the cannabis legislation and all all that discussion um, that has not responded well to treatment and made gets on his or her radar you could have a situation where we would have a young person like that, the state facilitating her 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 death, uh, her suicide. Um, is that already happening, or are there already questions like that in in your experience, John? Well, we have a few cases in the media where a maid has been provided for seemingly inappropriate reasons, um, and uh, I'm certainly hearing that from colleagues that approvals are happening and uh rather than the person um you know you know this is secondhand so i'm I'm hesitating to to confirm it but you know a young person who has depression doesn't yet meet criteria for uh, made because the legislation hasn't come into effect yet but the cause of death following made would be chronic fatigue syndrome some element some symptom right so characterizing what's what's happening is as something other than it is um, your, your point about recovery, I mean, the, where I think this is going to become profoundly complicated for our society is you or I as parents will suddenly get a call that our child has had made, our adult child has had made, and we will have known nothing about it because there's, for reasons of confidentiality, um, there's no requirement that parents be consulted. And 
so yes, people will be choosing this. I have patients telling me now they're afraid of the legislation because it makes it too easy. And I was at a conference about a month ago and uh, the, the topic of discussion was, was made of the psychiatric conference. And one of the clinicians in the audience stood up and, and he said, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia 22 years ago. And I was told by my then psychiatrist, as it happened, Dr. Stan Kutcher, that I would never get better, that uh, I, was, I was doomed in effect. And he said, if MAID had been available then, I'd have chosen it absolutely on the basis of that message from my psychiatrist who was making a prediction that was clearly inaccurate. And there he was 22 years later and had spent decades working with people with mental illness as a very skilled clinician. You know, this is, this is not the, the romantic world of terminal illness. Uh, this is not, you know, at, at grandma's bedside with a beautiful planned family goodbye, however you construe that. We have only one small study from Switzerland that looked at the impact on family members um, when people had chosen, uh, chosen euthanasia who could have lived longer. And 40% subsequently had diagnosable depression and PTSD. You know, the, the sense of helplessness, the, the horror and the sorrow. I mean, people, people don't want to die. They just want relief from suffering. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for listeners, uh, Dr. Stan Kutcher is now in the Senate and has been uh, an advocate of, of extending MAID in these circumstances. Uh, as you said, John, part of the challenge with this, this bill and the process was that it came at a time of COVID. People weren't paying attention. The amendment came in the Senate, uh, which I think was inappropriate in itself. And it came as a result of a Quebec case that the government never appealed. You know, I've spoken for many years on how the Carter decision changed the standard and allowed the, the state to have an, an active role at end of life as opposed to passive, which was the, the Rodriguez standard where you have palliative care, you reduce pain, you make someone comfortable. But MAID is, is assisted suicide or euthanasia, whatever word you want to describe. And as you said, the, the romantic notion of the family gathering around grandpa or, or granny's bed um, near end of life to allow a peaceful transition, uh, I think people were comfortable. I'm very comfortable with that model um, now myself. But when you start dialing back and not make it, uh, it's now an irremediable condition that you could have two psychiatrists or one psychiatrist and one other medical profession saying this person only has a mental health condition. Um, it is treatable, but we're going to allow for MAID. That's kind of what is going to come into to, to being in March of next year, right? Absolutely. And Interestingly, the, the research is really relatively recent on this because nobody thought we'd kind of have to do research to defend predictions. So there, what I mean by that is there was a study just released um, through Oxford Press where they looked at the predictive accuracy of psychiatrists who were treating treatment-resistant depression. And they did a review of all, kind of all the existing literature, because you'll hear made advocates say over and over, you know, there are X number of people who won't get better. Well, we don't know. The studies were not designed to follow people over the long run. They were looking at a particular treatment at a particular point in time. But the, the interesting finding of a review of all this stuff was that 
the likelihood of a psychiatrist being accurate in predicting recovery from depression was 42%, which is less than chance, right? Mm -hmm. You're not yeah. right flipping half. a coin. Yeah. It is, it is flipping a yeah. coin. Yeah. And uh, so when, when people are claiming with some, uh, you know, unfounded confidence that, of course, we can say who's not going to get better, and of course, we should relieve their suffering. The answer is, we don't know who. And the answer is, have they tried the treatments that are available? And if someone says, yep, they've tried everything, my answer to that is, for many people, healing happens with the passage of time. Here's the, you know, you're moving into a kind of philosophical area here, but the question I would ask you, when I have someone like in the, the W5 story recently, Mr. Scully, who talked about, you know, 35 years of intolerable suffering, well, how did he live for 35 years? What, what, what is true intolerability in this context? I'm not trying to diminish his or anyone's suffering, of course, but what are the things that keep us going and, you know, how do we how do we find purpose and meaning? Yeah. And, and so often, you know, in my experience, the, the people who want to die, when you have these conversations in the middle of night in the emergency room, they were there because of loneliness. They were there yeah. because of, you know, feeling no connection with the world. Um, and we do know that, you know, over 80% of the people who complete suicide in Canada have mental illness. So we're not even talking about that group of people who have distorted psychotic thinking or, you know, impulsive suicidal actions. Um, we're just talking about human beings who need care and support and the right treatment. And are in a temporary state of of depression or loneliness or longing and, and lacking purpose. I've met so many veterans, John, in my work as a veteran, as minister afterwards, who were literally in the pit of despair, thought they were a burden to their family, their friends, closing themselves off, but got help, often through a, a buddy or a family member, got them into a program. So many of them then help others. You know, yep. One veteran that became a friend of mine gave me Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, um, and said, this book saved my life, and then gives it to other veterans. And so, what we have to do is be providing hope, providing treatment options, providing housing, providing more more supports that would likely address at least that that loneliness or that quality of life or that sense of being a burden um, that that I think is is really precipitating this. And we shouldn't allow a misguided progressive uh, approach to made to uh, to hide the fact that we would be having the state determining that the quality of that person's life is is of not sufficient value to continue. And I think there's a real ethical, moral dilemma with this determination in mental health. And you must see that as an ethicist even more than a psychiatrist. Yes. I mean, in a very real way that, that seems obvious to me, we're being, we're, we're witnessing, um, subtle and not so subtle social engineering that's grooming us, moving us towards a value position where we should believe that we're because we're burdens on others, the noble thing is to end our life, end our life sooner than we wish. Um, you'll remember Roy Bonesteel from CBC's Man Alive, I assume. I knew, I knew Roy, and in his retirement years, um, he would do a talk, and the, the title of the talk was that we must be a burden on each other that this is the most uh, noble and meaningful thing about human life, that these are the opportunities to care and find meaning and, and uh, to truly be 
present with one another. And yeah. so if I bring this back to your, your philosophical question, that's a, you know, a, a very rich existential pick your perspective, whether it's a faith perspective or a humanist perspective, you know, we shouldn't want our fellow human beings to die because of suffering that we can do something about, right? And when you have made advocates saying from, from really a strong libertarian position, each of us must be free to do what we want and should be helped to do that. When you have the justice minister recently saying, you know, suicide isn't just a freedom, it's a right and rights entail entail yeah. reciprocal duties, right? The state has to do well, something. Well, and let's look at that because, you know, you and I are talking before we started. Uh, I worked in high school or in high school in a hospital in my community. And um, I remember talking to a nurse. There was someone in there that was recovering from a suicide attempt. And the nurse talked about how not long before uh, people would be charged. You know, it was illegal. Uh, so the state had determined that you were breaking the law if you, whether for mental illness or for whatever reason, uh, tried to take your own life. We've come to look and talk about suicide in a much more mature way. I tried to do that as veterans minister. We've now had a silver cross mother um, for Remembrance Day from one of our soldiers who died by, by suicide from, from mental injuries from service. But the right to suicide, you know, the issue here ethically, I think, is the state creating a system that facilitates suicide for people that would not die. Um, and the inherent right that someone may have to have full autonomy, including suicide, is different when you're asking the state to do it. Um, and then the state has to make that determination. And I think this gets... I think this gets missed by so many people um, and why your advocacy and, and those, those dilemmas like the Niagara Falls incident are so important for people to see that we are going in a very different direction that um, I think is an erosion of, 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 of the value of people. Um, what would you like to see before March, John? You know, there's this special committee of parliament meeting that will likely have something done by Christmas or January. We're literally down to the wire as we have been on the Carter decision and all these things. And I was criticized heavily for trying to hold up debate because of my concerns on this mental health and, and mature minors as well. Um, what would you like to see before March? A, a, a pause? Should the profession, if 91% of psychiatrists don't want to do this, should there be much more uh, you know, widely discussed uh, issue here? Or should we, you know, sh should the profession be calling for a, a ban or a temporary pause? So there, there had been some hope that the parliamentary committee chaired by uh, Mona Gupta would at least come out with some recommendations that if you're going to go ahead with this, at least require, uh, you know, at least one psychiatric consultation, if not two, and that it should be by someone who has expertise in your particular mental illness, right? This is not a monolith of diseases. This is hundred, hundreds of diseases with areas of specialization. So when that report came back with, as you know, two, two of the panel members, uh, signing uh, with no added safeguard. All we're left with is irremediability, which as 
we've you know talked about is interpreted broadly so broadly that it means i can kill you now because you're on a wait list and you shouldn't have to wait uh, which is i don't believe uh, the supreme court would ever kind of uphold that interpretation my long-term hope is that there will be a case that works its way to the supreme court i i say with some confidence i, I don't know if you share this opinion but when you look at the stated principle of preservation of life in Carter, their goal was to have people live as long as possible and only help them because they couldn't do it themselves. So we have discriminatory legislation that is doing the opposite, robbing people of, you know, decades of life. If we have a 17 year old who gets made, um, as uh, you know, a, a local psychiatrist has offered to do with a 17 year old depression that I'm directly aware of, you know, that's, um, that's not what the court intended. So what would I hope for? I would hope for a delay in the implementation of the legislation. I would hope for a more thoughtful and balanced review than we saw with the Gupta panel. It was clearly a loaded panel. We knew people's positions before going in. Mm-hmm. We also knew they were given a mandate to figure out how to do it, not whether it should happen. And to be frank, the whether it should happen discussion has not been had in Canada. It just didn't happen the way this amendment was introduced in the Senate. So slow down, think it through. And I'd be surprised with uh, careful consideration uh, whether there wouldn't be over time, there'd have to be enough time for people to reflect and understand some of the nuance that you've just been highlighting. You know, when we have the Quebec position reversed, when they've come back and, and said, we're not going to do it, they listened. And Mm -hmm. so people have to listen first and there has to be a movement away from the agenda that is, you know, it's an equity argument. Everybody has to have the same access to this medical procedure. Well, it was made artificially a medical procedure. I don't know if you know, we're the only country in in the world that calls it a medical procedure, Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly. Um, And uh, really people who are concerned are concerned because the issue is equality not equity. This is the disability community's outcry. This is the indigenous community's outcry. This is the United Nations outcry. They're all saying equality and people say, oh, what's the difference between equity and equality? Well, equity is me saying everybody should have an apartment. Equality is everybody actually being able to afford an apartment and not be homeless. Yeah. Right. So we don't have equality of mental health care. We don't have equality for disability supports, as you know. Uh, we don't even have equality for palliative care. It's not a, a required service in Canada. So we have these glaring, horrific gaps in service provision, basic standards of care, and yet we offer death faster than I can get mental health treatment. Yeah. So, so what do yeah. I want? I, I want it to slow down. I want at the very least safeguards. Um, do I believe as someone who does this work that there will ever be a legitimate case where you can predict your remediability? It's not actually possible to do that as a clinician. And uh, those who say they do are, what they're saying is they're comfortable with guesswork. And again, the one small study we have from, uh, from Belgium looking at how euthanasia for psychiatric illness was determined, all of the psychiatrists said, we did it by looking backwards, not forwards. Yeah. So with terminal illness, I say, yeah, nothing more I can do. Psychiatry, I literally have hundreds of combinations of medications. I have psychotherapy. I have coping support. Uh, it's just truly endless. Um, but- yeah. And if someone is housed and, and better fed and, and on top of those, those treatments, less loneliness, 
um, their outcomes much be, might be totally different than than the circumstances are in. Um, in in the last few minutes, John, because after you, I'm going to have a veterans advocate on. Let's talk about this in practice. You've probably seen the cases uh, up to a half dozen of them now, where veterans with mental health injuries from service were calling a, a government facilitated uh, helpline or assistance line, and in the course of a discussion with that agent, who they see as their government, uh, they're getting suggestions. Well, if you're frustrated, you're not getting your case dealt with quickly enough. Have you considered made? Um, this is already happening now before the regime is even in place. Is this a glimpse into, you know, the the slippery slope here? I, I have great respect for Andre Picard, but in the Globe this week, he kind of poo-pooed the slippery slope argument. We're already seeing in, in, in practice, I have another constituent who was denied CPP disability. And she said in a very difficult conversation with an agent, uh, she was told to consider made. So you're calling to try and get a claim or get more financial support as a veteran, and you're being referred to assisted dying. Is this what we could see once this regime is in full operation? Well, absolutely. We, we know in Australia, the legislation prohibits the bringing up of, of made. Uh, it has to be something the person you know, brings up themselves. Yeah, I, I have this happening, hearing about it regularly with colleagues. I have it happening in my own world. I have a, when someone's referred to me, in my mind, it's about three years of, of uh, sorting out and treating the disease. They've been sick for a long time. Many are referred to us with psychiatrists saying they'll never get better. They get better. We have 90% reduction in hospital admissions in the first year. We know it works. We've got 50 years of research saying we know it works. Um, but while treating a patient recently, the well-meaning family doctor, um, she brought up MAID with the family doctor, and the family doctor sent a MAID assessor to her. I'm in the middle of treatment, and my patient is being offered MAID. And again, I don't know in any other area of medicine that would happen, right? If you're, you're in the middle of chemotherapy and, you know, some MAID assessor shows up and says, hey, uh, you don't have to go through this. And I worked in pediatric oncology for six years. It was a major struggle to keep kids working away at, at, at long chemotherapy regimens, right? You have to build mm -hmm. hope and, and courage and push. And so, yes, it's happening. It's absolutely happening. It's becoming the norm. We know that the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario currently has draft policies that they've sought feedback on. And in addition to effective referrals, they're, they're proposing that you have to follow through and make sure that the person gets to someone who's going to you know, provide the service they want. This is bizarre. In, in medicine, you, re you refer to another specialist because you know, you, you need help, they have expertise. If we're in the bizarre position of a, of a patient being able to say to me, I want MAID, I refuse all treatments to make myself eligible for MAID, and you have to refer me to someone who's going to give me MAID for sure, this is uh, remarkable, but that is what is, what is happening. And uh, the number of times that I've had people now say to me, again, this is the last few months, it's an obvious escalation. That, you know, my mom's been offered maid. My mom was in hospital because she fell and she was offered maid. There's nothing wrong with her. Or I had a colleague uh, call me recently. 
you know, supporting, um, doing some psychotherapy work with a gentleman uh, confined to a wheelchair in a nursing home. And he brought up Maid with his daughter. And his daughter said, well, whatever you want, Dad, we're going to support it. What he wanted was for her to say, Dad, don't die. We love you. We need you. And so he told the psychotherapist that, okay, that was, that was the last straw if I'm not wanted in the world. And so when people say you have to offer Maid because it's a professional duty to offer all the medical treatments possible. Sorry, killing someone is not a medical treatment. There, nowhere in the history of informed consent, when you're going over risks, you know, you're talking about risk of dying or disability. This is this is not in any way that type of thing. You're saying to someone, whether you believe it or not, I got nothing left. Um, this is if I'm offering it to you then it's quite reasonable for you to think, oh, you must be telling me that my case is hopeless. Uh, so it's it's not a benign action at all. No. It, it carries a, a tremendous impact, horrific impact for people. And it, it's part of what I think is this well-intended but but misguided uh, approach to, to equality, as you said, as if limiting access to MAID for people that have treatable conditions that could could be even temporary given their circumstance um, it is somehow discriminating against mental health. It's, it's completely misguided. I think what we have to do as a society is fill those gaps you talked about. At the very least, we should channel that compassion, that, that sort of progressive element into more mental health treatment options, more basic housing options, uh, more addictive treatments at a time where uh, I support harm reduction and, and, you know, as much supports as possible, but some people would be well-placed for, for treatment as well and getting out of the addictive cycle completely. And what, what we're going to face is not only that, that gentleman in the wheelchair in the senior's home who feels maybe like a burden to his family we may get indirectly health professionals in a crowded hospital with huge waits for rooms, seeing these people as numbers um, and with made not even very well understood, we could essentially be um, devaluing people in the, in the process of clearing out backlogs. And I think the state from a moral level should not allow such an uncertain um, set of rules or, or criteria allow us to, to, to slide into that where people will, will be ending their own life just to be less of a burden on their family or the system. Um, Absolutely. One of the most dangerous components of, of this, this whole scenario is the 100,000 doctors and nurse practitioners who will be operating without oversight, without uh, any prospective review requirement with no retrospective review requirement because what will go on at the bedside and behind the the closed doors you know will be people being given this message that death is the way to go for for reasons you're saying and it can be done you know with uh, uh you know apparent um uh you know moral high ground um but it's it's not what we should be doing as a society. We shouldn't be inviting people to death. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to say it's very refreshing to speak with you because 
you're so incredibly informed about all of this and you're i frankly your your efforts to uh, to slow things down and have people um, uh, reflect on this have been deeply appreciated by by those of us who feel that canadians just don't know what's happening and i i do believe the majority of canadians still have no idea what this means for mental health yeah yeah, I, I recommend to people the Globe and Mail, Aaron Anderson's piece from a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Uh, you're quoted, several other physicians. Uh, it's it's excellent. As people become more aware, I think they become quite uncomfortable with where we're going, but they're not aware. And I've tried to approach it responsibly. I have great respect for David Lametti. He was a professor at McGill. and But I even tried to say the underlying notions of Carter, as you said, uh, was was not to make this very simple for people with mental health conditions or it was actually to you know to facilitate um uh, death in the case of somebody that had a, a foreseeable and was approaching death and so we're we're totally going away from where the supreme court's intention was let's end john i think with that that's that article in the globe you had it you said at the end um the young man made the decision to come back from the edge of the falls and was hugged. And uh, it wasn't groups of people saying, you have the full autonomy to do whatever you want. And, and then the other group, as you said, and you you group them by political party. I won't do that today. But and the group saying you matter, we're going to get you the help you need. Um, strangers were hugging that person because they saw the inherent value in that person. And I think that's that's what we need to do in this debate recognize there is compassion on all sides but not create a system that will lead to us losing people uh, that we shouldn't be losing as a society yes autonomy has been misunderstood people want treatment they want relief of suffering precisely because they want their autonomy restored they don't want to suffer under the burden of the disease uh, they, they want a better and freer life. So that's autonomy, to be able to live as you wish. And that's the work that I and my team are doing every day. It's helping people live as they wish. And they want to live. Death is a desperate course because they've been told nothing else will help. And especially when they know there's stuff out there that they could have access to and they can't get it. Again, people don't understand what that means for someone to be told, yep, we could help you but we're not. They want hope. They want purpose. Yep. And I'll tell you, John, your team, your flexible, assertive community treatment team that are in those places dealing with the vulnerable, you're providing that hope. And I think you've certainly lived up to the spirit of your childhood friend. And I can see it's given you purpose as well. I, I see that with so many veterans whose new purpose, once they get well, is helping other people. So Thank you for what you've been doing, and please thank your, your team out in their community for us. Thank you. And if I may say on the veteran piece, my wife uh, works with frontline uh, responders. So many of our dinner conversations are about trauma and how you, you move past that. And as you, know, you mentioned, uh, Romeo Dallaire, uh, as someone who's inspiring, he, he's inspired uh, so many in the world. But uh, again, uh, you know, <laughs> there are ways out of the suffering. There are ways out of the suffering for all of us, but we have to do it. Yeah. There, there is, there is always hope, even in the in the darkest hours. And that purpose is 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 how you use the hope to get out.
as Romeo did and look at the lives he's helping uh, around the world because he got on that journey to wellness. Thank you, Dr. John Marr, for your compassion, for your perspective. Our, our next conversation will be on the front lines of veteran advocacy, but thank you for your advocacy for your patients and for Canadians. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Really appreciate the conversation.